You know, this life is filled with signs. Uh, and I'm not talking about supernatural, miraculous signs. I mean the signs that tell you what speed to go, when there's a sharp turn, when there's a cliff ahead, when there's danger. We are surrounded by warning signs. We've even, because of our litigious society, even had to be warned that hot coffee is very hot. But there's warnings about it's slippery when it's wet, bridge may ice during winter. We seem to be prone to danger, and so we have to warn ourselves away from it. This week while traveling, I was speaking to my wife, and she said, our kids seem to be trying to kill themselves. From head injuries to fingers shut in doors, everywhere we turn, it's not just them, we do it to ourselves, we find ourselves in danger. And so we're surrounded by these warning signs that help to protect us from that, at least we've tried to artificially protect ourselves from that. And there's many places in Scripture where we are provided with warning signs to help us along the way, both spiritually and sometimes practically, in this life. Last week we began this section in Matthew 23 that starts in verse 13 containing seven woes. We observe the first of those three woes, and this week we're going to look at the next three as we continue to study these warnings from woes. These woes in Matthew 23 provide warnings against neglecting the greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, which Jesus says is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Warnings against hating your neighbor and demonstrating a lack of love for God is what comprises these woes of warning. So as we turn back to them this morning, remember, we're studying them so you can, not so that you can feel better about yourselves as you compare yourself to the Pharisees, saying, I'm glad I'm not like them, like those Jewish religious leaders. Rather, use them as guideposts, as signs to help keep you from careening off the narrow path. Use them to help develop a deeper love for God, a deeper love for your neighbor. Well, that said, if you haven't already turned there, perhaps you would turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 23. And we'll begin this morning in verse 23, picking up with the fourth of these woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but Inside, they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too, 
outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, to these warnings that are given to these religious leaders, Father, help us to take note of them, to pay attention to the warning signs. That we would not fall into the same patterns, the same habits. That we would cultivate a deeper love and appreciation for you, for your son, for the work of the cross. That it would be manifested in our love for our neighbor. pray this in your name. Amen. Well, verses 23 and 24 bring us to this fourth woe, a warning, if you want to title it, of misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities in loving God and loving others. Look at your Bible in verses 23 and 24. There's a a lot going on in these two verses. There's tithing. There's something about weightier provisions of the law, of justice, of mercy, of faithfulness. We could do a whole sermon on each of those. Then there's a comical word picture about swallowing a camel while trying not to swallow a fly. Let's unpack this. Once again, the religious leaders, as it opens up, are called hypocrites. This term always refers to the Jewish religious leaders when it's used in Matthew. It's used 13 times in Matthew. Six of those times are here in this passage, in these passages. And as we've discussed, a hypocrite is one who wants to hide their true identity. They might say and do one thing while really meaning something else. They might act one way outwardly and an entirely different way privately. They might talk one way with one group of people and an entirely different way with another group of people. They're very much concerned about their appearance, how people perceive them. Well, here in this fourth woe, these hypocrites are concerned with being noticed about their tithing. Tithing, in case you're not as familiar with it, or that term is an Old Testament concept. It refers to one-tenth of something. And the concept of tithing first appears all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis when Abraham met Melchizedek after his battle and defeat of the kings of the valley in Genesis 14. There's a fun story there. I encourage you to read sometime. Start back in Genesis 13 and you read through and read who it is that Abraham defeats. But you've got to stop and pay attention I mean, to who these guys are that he defeats to get the full impact of the story. So you've got to back up to 13 and read slowly through the beginning. But God is with Abraham. He goes. He defeats these kings in this valley. And fun little fact, this is an entire parenthetical. has nothing to do with the sermon. It's for free this morning. Skeptics didn't believe those cities even existed for hundreds of years. They thought that they were made-up places in the Bible since there was no archaeological evidence even naming those places. Then in 1974, there was a discovery in Syria, an ancient Sumerian palace with thousands of clay tablets, archives, 
To this day, only some of them have been excavated, and even only some of those have been translated. But of those that were translated, listed there were taxes or duties that were to be paid or tributes to be paid. And there you find the five cities named in the exact same order you have them in Genesis. It's a good reminder that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Well, back to Abraham. He gave one-tenth of his spoil to Melchizedek as an offering to God. And he provides us with the first mention of tithing. Later in Israel's history, the concept of a tenth or a tithe was codified. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 11 through 18, in chapter 14, 22 through 29, in Numbers 18, 21 through 29, the people were to tithe grain, wine, oil, fruit, the first harvest, the first of their herds and their flocks. But just in case you thought 10% was all Israel had to give, there are several other offerings in addition to those tithes. In fact, if you add them all together, they had to give up to at least 20% of their total income. And that didn't include the additional free will offerings. So one-tenth was this tithe was the bare minimum of your giving as an ancient Israelite to which additional offerings and free will offerings were added. And this sermon this morning is not about tithing. The only other comment I'll make generally on tithing for right now is that the legal requirements around Israel's offerings do not carry forward to the church. Giving and giving generously certainly do. But the focus is less on the specific amount, amount, a tithe or a tenth, and more on the heart of a cheerful giver. In fact, it's the natural outcome of this very passage that the emphasis is to be on the inward desire, the heart, the love for God and neighbor that motivates our giving, not trying to follow some tenth or tithe. Offerings and giving should be the outflow of our love for God and our love for others. Compared to this passage where they've become an obstacle and a distraction to those things. In verse 23, the religious leaders are not condemned for following the command to give of their produce. In fact, they're doing that. In fact, the second half of verse 23 There Jesus says, these are the things you should have done. You're you're doing the right thing in giving the tithe, but you should have done it without neglecting the others. So they're good things to do, he says. Following this instruction is a good thing to do. The question is, is when does a good thing become a bad thing? Well, there's at least two ways that happens. First, and that's not necessarily the point of this passage, is when it's done for the wrong reason or with the wrong motivation. We really looked at that last week. The good thing becomes a bad thing when it's done for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation. But secondly, and the primary thrust of this passage, the good thing becomes a bad thing when it keeps you from doing more important things. That's the focus of Jesus' condemnation here. Reading your Bible is good, Reading your Bible while trying to drive is bad. You're going to hurt others. Sharing the gospel with someone is good, but ignoring someone drowning in the lake while you try to share the gospel is bad. We immediately recognize that there are some things that are weightier and take precedence. Jesus has highlighted that the second greatest commandment is not tithing, but loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the weightier command. That is what the religious leaders were ignoring in all that they were doing. Specifically, Jesus says, you are ignoring justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
They're acting unjustly. They are, if you were to look and understand what was going on at this time, they are robbing widows and orphans. They're stealing inheritances. They're tipping the scales of justice to grow their wealth and their power. In this woe of warning, Jesus does not fault the Pharisees for what they did, but for what they did not do. They did not show justice and mercy and faithfulness. They have no mercy. Remember last week, they will not even lift a single finger to help those they are burdening with their additional laws. There is no faithfulness. Luke knows this is a reference to that, that love, that loyal love in Luke eleven forty two. There is no love toward other people, others. People are just an instrument and a means for gain to these religious leaders. Their priorities are completely misplaced. And Jesus caps it off and illustrates this with an absurd illustration of a gnat, that is an itty-bitty flying insect, and a camel, the biggest beast of burden. Didn't mean for the alliteration, sometimes it just happens. The biggest beast of burden there in ancient Near East. But both of these things are unclean to the Israelite. Verse 24 pictures a people who have completely lost their sense of priority, majoring on the minors. A gnat, that tiny, itty-bitty, winged insect, considered unclean. The Jews would go to great lengths to avoid swallowing one. They would strain their wine or what they were drinking through something akin to cheesecloth to make sure that a gnat didn't get in there and they didn't accidentally become unclean. What Jesus has said is while you're doing that, you're eating a camel, another much bigger, obvious, unclean animal. Here they are straining the gnat while trying to swallow a whole camel. They're worried about the minutia while missing the obvious sins of loving their neighbor. In their case, hating their neighbor. Their unloving actions that should be as obvious as a camel are making them unclean. Where their attention to those smaller things should have made them more sensitive to the greater things and prepared them to do the greater things of the law, they instead became obsessed with the smaller things, unable to look beyond them and recognize their purpose. They completely misplaced priorities. In fact, the very purpose of tithing is love for neighbor. Tithing helped to provide for the Levites who were not given an inheritance in the land of Israel. And it was also intended to be used for the orphan and the widow, the most needy in their midst. Deuteronomy 26, 12 to 13. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger to the orphan, to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house and have given it to the Levite, the alien, the orphan, the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. The whole purpose of tithing to begin with was to care for others. The Pharisees, Sinner on the lesser and ignore the greater. They are myopic. They are short-sighted in their attempts at keeping the law. And it's easy to want to look down our noses at these religious leaders, especially after that absurd illustration of a gnat and a camel. I mean, it's not like any of us would ever make such an obvious blunder. 
We would never be unkind to our wife or our husband or our children or our brothers and sisters on Sunday morning and then smile and be friendly to everyone at church. We would never be so focused on showing hospitality that we were on roughshod over our own family to make our home presentable. We'd never be in such a hurry to get to a Bible study or church that we would drive right past persons in need. We would never be so worried about the behavior of our children in front of others that we would forget to shepherd their hearts. Never be fo- so focused on trying to help others that we ignore our own family, would we? We would never eat a camel while straining a gnat. The reality is, there are dozens of ways in which we act just like these religious leaders. So take this woe of warning and use it to evaluate your life. Ask, what do your priorities look like? Where do they need to get back in line? Where do you need to do a better job loving your neighbor and loving God? The lesser must never become an excuse to neglect love for neighbor. Well, there's more to learn from these Pharisees. And by that, I mean we have more warnings. The fifth woe of warning comes in verses 25 and 26. It's a warning about focusing on the externals, not the internals. In some ways, it's very much related to the fourth woe about misplaced priorities. But there's a specific nuance to this fifth woe of warning. And it's on integrity, on personal integrity and trying to hide your true intentions. In this case, being unintegrous. Jesus starts by describing the religious leaders doing dishes. Trying to get the job done fast, they clean just the outside of the dish, stick it on the shelf, leaving the inside dirty. And Jesus portrays these Pharisees trying to pretend that the dishes are clean, when the reality is they'll make you sick if you try to eat from them. The inside contains rotting, maggot-infested food that was never cleaned, covered in flies, and smells awful. But at least they look pretty on the shelf. Children, have you ever been told to clean your room but you were in a hurry so quickly stuffed everything into drawers or closets or under the bed to try and make your room look clean but really it was still full of just small little hidden messes? That's what these religious leaders were doing. Only what they were doing is far worse because they were doing it with their lives and they were pretending to be clean and spotless. As a result, creating an impossible burden for others to follow But the truth was they were robbing the people of Israel. They were only concerned about themselves in this. They were not loving their neighbor as themselves. They were using their neighbor for themselves. All the while pretending to have good intentions, to look clean, and everything I do is pure. It's for your benefit. While using their neighbors for themselves, deceiving people. One commentator and preacher notes throughout history, false religious leaders have become rich and fat by fleecing those who they pretend to serve. Outwardly, they appear righteous, caring, and exemplary, but inwardly, they are rapacious wolves. Now, before we look at the implications from this fifth woe, I want to look at the sixth because it's closely related. Well, the fifth woe that we just read in verses 25 and 26 emphasizes personal integrity. This sixth woe relates to spiritual integrity here in verses 27 through 28. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pharisees were dressing up the outside with all their religious practices while death and decay is on the inside. Just a little bit of background. Around Passover, as thousands of pilgrims made their way and flocked to Jerusalem, the religious establishment ensured that all of the graves and the tombs in the surrounding area were covered with a whitewash. They were, whether it was lime or something like that, to, to make them white, and they would stand out as you walked around. Certainly, in and of themselves, it would have at times appeared pretty, although I think the emphasis here on the beauty is elsewhere. But their main purpose, the reason they would do this, is that you needed to easily identify a tomb because if you came in contact with a dead body or bones, even inadvertently, you were considered unclean for seven days. And if you had just showed up for the biggest feast of the year, the last thing you wanted to do was be banned from the festivities. So they would mark these tombs so that nobody would inadvertently come across them and touch them and be prohibited from entering the temple, unable to offer sacrifices. They were painted white as a way of warning passerbys to stay away. It's a little bit of an irony here about warning to stay away and calling them whitewashed tombs. Not only this, but many of the graves themselves were very ornate. Monuments, similar to mausoleums. They were created to honor many of the dead persons. Just like today, many of those tombs were impressive. They were beautiful to look, like, look at, especially when painted white, standing out. But each one of these beautifully ornate, whitewashed tombs held a dark secret. Behind the beauty was death and decay. And this irony, this facade, provided the perfect illustration for Jesus to draw upon when looking at the spiritual character of the religious leaders. They went to great lengths to dress themselves up. They wore the largest phylacteries. They adorned their robes with the longest tassels. They had trumpets that announced their coming. They prayed ostentatiously in the marketplace to be seen and heard by all. They waited to give their offerings to the poor until they had a large crowd gathered who would congratulate them upon, for their generosity. It was all a show, a carefully constructed show to present a fa facade of spiritual sincerity, a show that would mask the putrid, rotting, dead spiritual life within. And Jesus makes it clear, the religious leaders are not what they seem. In both of these woes of warning, verses 25 through 28, we see the warning about integrity. Warning for personal integrity and warning concerning spiritual integrity. And we're reminded of the danger of trying to maintain an outward appearance that hides the truth. And after reading these woes, we once again find ourselves in the position of sitting as judges over these Pharisees and religious leaders, looking down at them from our high perch, shaking our heads at their personal and spiritual hypocrisy as they pretend they have it all together when nothing could be further from the truth. And yet again, I cannot help but recognize how easily we fall into the same dangerous patterns. I want to ask a few questions, and I want you to think about them carefully. 
the first is rather easy, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you sinned this week? Look on your faces, confirm what I suspected. We're all sinners, and we sin far too regularly. Now let me ask you this question. I want you to think about it for a moment. How comfortable do you feel telling other believers about your sin? Another question. When is the last time you confessed your sin to another believer? Not because they sinned against you, you sinned against them, but for their help, for their prayers. I'm not talking about Roman Catholic practice of confession where you look for absolution from the priest. The only person who grants that is God through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about going to a fellow believer for prayer and encouragement because you are sinning. You know at least I hope you know, we are told to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I didn't come up with that. It was right out of James. So that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Let me turn the tables for a moment. How do you think you would respond if someone came up to you right after we dismiss and confessed their sin and asked you to pray for them? Would you be uncomfortable? If so, why? It can't be because you are without sin. I have a theory. I believe we have created in many doctrinally sound churches that love to study the Bible in an unhealthy environment, much like the Pharisees. We have created a burden to always look like we have no sin. Pastors are expected to be perfect. People are expected to look like they are without sin. You're supposed to leave your baggage at the door. Leaders, because they have to be perfect, are fearful of losing their jobs and their income if they confess sin. So they must always act like they have it together. Are there sins that disqualify? Yes, absolutely. But not every sin. If that was the case, no one could ever be a leader. What does John say in 1 John? If you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not even in you to begin with. That is, you're not even a Christian. But the problem is not just with pastors or leaders. It trickles down to every member of the church. We go about our Christian lives and act surprised when we find out another Christian sins. I think the only reason we are surprised is because we're failing at confessing sin and praying for one another. Instead, we make it so persons are afraid to confess their sin for fear of being judged or ostracized. Be honest. Would you treat the person next to you differently if they told you they had developed a habit of lying and asked you to pray for them? Would you look at them the same? Or they were struggling to love their wife or they were sinning with gluttony or greed and wanted your prayers. You see, I'm not convinced we would always respond rightly. And so we continue to cultivate an environment where the only option is to act like a Pharisee who has no sin, afraid to confess it to others, afraid to let them into their, your life, pretending to be perfect. This is what Jesus is warning the religious leaders about. 
Stop pretending. Repent. Turn from your sin. Confess your sins to God first and then to one another. Ask for prayer from one another. Lean on one another. Don't be like these Pharisees who pretended they have no sin, that they are perfectly righteous. They have no need for God. They have no need for others. They have no need for confession. Like the Pharisee in the temple when he says, thank you, Lord, that I am not like that publican, that sinner. To be inwardly clean, like we see in verse 26, is not a reference to perfection, but a reference to pursuing our love for God and confessing sin, not holding on to it. Jesus describes this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.8 and calls it pure in heart. So how are you doing? At confessing sin? At being someone that someone can confess their sin to? I didn't like this text very much. Imagine you may feel the same about it right now. Don't shoot the messenger. We need hard texts like this. We need hard reminders like this. We need to be reminded to take a close look at our lives and be warned from the dangers of the Pharisees. We need to be reminded of our great need to cultivate a love for God and a love for people that is real and is genuine. We need lives of integrity. We need to do a better job loving God and loving our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we'll pause for a second. Okay, we're good. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for these warnings. Fathers, they help to direct and redirect our focus, our priorities, and our attention. Help us to have right priorities. Help us to live lives of integrity. Father, no, we do not want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to look down upon them as if we could never act like them, but we do want to avoid becoming like them. Where we have become like them, please forgive us. Help us to confess our sin. Help us to be people who can comfort and encourage and pray for those who have sinned. Father, help us in loving one another. We pray this in your name. Amen.